The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Barron's Live Financial News Edition. I'm Penny Sukraj, online editor for Financial News. And today with me is Rebecca Aching Ajulu Bushel, CEO of 10,000 Black Interns and former Great Britain champion swimmer. Rebecca, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's really, really exciting to have you on. Now, this next bit is not news to you. You're a British Kenyan. You've got two gold medals, which you've got at the 2008 African Swimming Championships, a first at the time for a Kenyan woman at the competition. In 2010, you started to swim for Great Britain, debuting at the European Championships in Budapest, and you became the first black woman to swim for Britain. Later in the same year, you competed at the Commonwealth Games in Delhi in India. And then you retired from competitive swimming in 2012. But Rebecca, far from a quiet life, you've gone on to direct a documentary about your dad and his experience as an activist academic who was quite vocal in speaking out against apartheid in South Africa. And from there, you went on to write an essay and win the annual US National Justice Four Essay Prize with your hegemonic America piece in 2021. And now you're leading 10,000 black interns. I'm sorry, you're 28. Please tell us, how are you doing this? What does it take to be CEO at 28? And where does this drive come from? Thank you so much for those kind words, Penny. That's it's actually really nice not to have to introduce myself. <laughs> um, it's really, really great to be here. Thanks so much for having me on. I think I could give some answer about getting up early, but I've actually, since I quit something, kind of given that off. <laughs> but I think that, you know, for me, through my career, there's always been this necessity to keep driving forward. Um, and I think that, you know, I was always told that opportunity was such a gift. And I think that that has yeah. been the thing that's really I think just kept me hungry for the next horizon, uh, the next challenge. Um, and I guess, you know, I'm still young. I haven't, haven't decided exactly where I'm going to settle yet. Um, but it's, yeah, it's been quite a journey. It's been quite an arc. And I think, you know, when you retire from your first job before you turn 18, you've got quite a kind of weary sense of work already behind you. And then, you know, people say, oh, you're only 28. But I think, I've been working since I was 10 years old. <laughs> yeah, I know you've, you've got a pretty rigorous schedule. It's been hard for me to even fit in with your diary, uh, but thank you so much. I mean, you know, you're, you've done so much. Uh, there's nothing about, you know, you and what comes across from you that speaks of tired or weariness, um, if anything, quite the opposite. Um, I have to say, I've also been stalking you a little on LinkedIn and uh, noted in the 20, last 24 hours, you quoted a really interesting statistic uh, that some 95% of chief executives were also athletes. So you're in great company, considering Bank of America's Brian Monihan, 
Brian Monian and uh, his love of football. And uh, we've also got Mark Zuckerberg's fondness for fencing. I'd love to know, Rebecca, how <laughs> has the professional sport impacted the way in which you take the lead, especially on the diversity thematic, which, let's face it, is so hot and cutting across just about every industry right now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think two questions in there, but really, when it comes to sport, and anyone will know, um, you know, the sacrifices that you make to kind of create more time in the day, they really train your brain um, to, I guess, focus and kind of achieve a level of productivity that, um, you know, it means that you're kind of just always, always, always on when you're on. And when you have time to work, um, you work at a level of intensity that is probably beyond kind of reasonable expectation. And I mean, I spent 10 years kind of doing that to my body every single day. Um, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's particularly healthy all the time, but I would say that it, it creates in you a, a level of drive and discipline and focus and a respect for time. And I yeah. think that that's the thing that's, that's the thing that I bring to kind of my leadership every day, to my um, organization, to my team. I really want to impart on them that efficiency is about the way that you interact with time um, and not necessarily how quickly you get things done. So tell and me. Then, yeah, yeah, sorry. I, <laughs> no, no, go on. I realized I hadn't answered the other part of your question. I think, you know, my journey to this job was, as you had previously kind of been very astutely said, um, kind of quite long and winding. But being the first black woman to swim for Great Britain, you know, training had made me tough, um, but it hadn't really prepared me for the politics of my position. And I was 15, 16 when I was ranked first in the world. And so, you know, in a lot of ways, I was still a kid. Um, and I was focused on the job at hand, that was to win, to swim, to train, to stay in really good shape. And so when faced with the press attention around, you know, my race and the color of my skin, it was always difficult to, um, I guess, to hold that intention with the fact that I was like a young girl coming of age, um, the yeah. fact that sport was the focus, um, and also that, you know, I had to kind of navigate the racism um, while still, you know, being part of a British team. And the press would write things like, you know, she speaks with a cut glass British accent. Um, yeah. You know, and you think, well, how else am I going to speak? You know, I have a British passport. I was born here. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I've definitely brought that more kind of nuanced understanding of institutions and the way that... Um, you know, they can uphold these structures and attitudes yeah. that really continue to subjugate people of color, um, you know, people with any kind of diverse or minority status. Um, and it's something I'm sensitive to every single day because I lived it firsthand. Was there anything in your home experience, and I know your dad was an activist and, you know, his story and his journey is incredible, actually, and, and separate topic, but I'd love to know how that prepared you for something that hit you in quite an extraordinary way when, you know, as you say, when the press suddenly became also aware that you're, you're black as well as being their champion swimmer in Britain. Yeah. I mean, 
it's a funny thing being mixed race, especially being Kenyan British, you know, kind of one half of me almost colonized the other. And I grew up in Kenya despite being born in the UK. And so I always had this um, position in two worlds. You know, my mom is white and my dad was black. And I kind of moved between them with relative ease. I mean, you know, growing up, I was really lucky. My parents told me that, you know, I could do whatever I wanted. I could be whatever I wanted. Um, and I think that released me from a lot of the, maybe the gender and kind of racial politics that goes hand in hand with being a woman, being a black woman. Um, but I think it didn't probably do enough to prepare me for the fact that I was going to face that stuff anyway. Um, yeah. And I remember my dad saying to me once, you know, most women have to work twice as hard to have half as much. And he said, but you have to work four times as hard because not only are you a woman, but also you're black. And, you know, I think about that every day when I work with um, the young black students that come through the 10,000 Black Interns program, especially the young black women. Mm -hmm. And I think about how, you know, despite my parents kind of really telling me that the sky was the limit, um, you know, you still have to navigate the world and the world is inherently unfair. Um, and we've got a long way to go before we can kind of talk about equality. And at the moment, we're still in that equity conversation. And so... And, and you have the the organisation, you have the foundation, its very existence speaks to, to that need. Um, for the benefit of our American audience, um, I wonder, Rebecca, if you could just share a little bit. We're very familiar with what the foundation does here in the city. I wonder if you could just share a quick nugget about what it is you do and what your goals are. Absolutely. So the 10,000 Interns Foundation, as it's known now, um, started life as 100 Black Interns, which was an initiative that was launched in the city back in 2020. Um, and it was a group of, you know, Black money managers um, and a couple of other co-founders who got together and said, you know, we need to do something tangible, physical now about the lack of representation um, of young Black kids um, black talented students and graduates in the investment management world and so they messaged around some friends and said will you take an intern next summer pay them a minimum local living wage um, and give them a six-week internship and so 10,000 black interns was born the response was huge and we now have over 30 sectors represented in our program um, over 3,000 internships have been pledged by firms from BBC, the NHS, um, Goldman Sachs, PwC. Loads and loads of people are on board. And this year, we've just launched the 10,000 ABLE Interns Programme, which oh. is a similar programme for students and graduates with disability. Now, that's, that's, quite, uh, that's quite interesting because you're, you're going beyond the sort of accessibility issues, beyond race. You're actually looking... Um, at different issues does do things like you know neurodiversity and all of that come into play as well at all yeah absolutely so mm -hmm. when we talk about accessibility and when we talk about disability obviously it's not just um you know physical impairment yeah. we're also talking about mental health we're also talking about um autism spectrum disorders hearing impairments sensory impairments um 
you know, the underrepresentation of disabled people in the workforce is startling and the disability employment gap is not closing fast enough. So I think, you know, we know at the 10,000 Interns Foundation that we have a program and we have a group of really great partners in the firms that sign up to our program willing to kind of make this change happen. And so we thought, you know, why not expand and meet the needs of other underrepresented minority groups? Well, in terms of stature, you know, the, the one that I can um, can relay is the stat about the lack of representation among the most senior echelons of city firms. And we know this, that despite, you know, 23% of the UK's minority graduates emerging from the top universities, we just still don't have a black chief executive or CFO or a chair in the FTSE 100. And obviously, I can't speak to, you know, those of, uh, of who are disabled. But what do you make of, of this slow pace in the city uh, in terms of appointing people uh, of colour to executive roles? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the stats around disabled people are exactly the same. There are no um, senior executives um, with disability in, in those city positions either. And I think that, you know, one of the things that's really important is this idea of cultural capital, uh, mm. the way that people move through organizations, the way that they ascend through organizations. Um, a lot of it is about network. It is about who you know. It's about how you can use those connections. Um, and it's also about the way that things have been done, right? I think that's one of the problems is that, you know, we have a very specific culture within these organizations. Um, and if you can adhere to it, that's rewarded. Can you and give me so, an example of something you've come across anecdotally? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I have a lot of conversations with firms where they'll say, um, you know, well, this, you know, this, this intern, it, it just, it just wasn't a good fit, you know, mm. and I think, well, this person doesn't have any experience of work because they're 18, 19 years old. So what do you mean? And I guess what they mean is that they don't talk like us, they don't dress like us, um, mm. you know, or they don't know, they don't have the same cultural touchstones, right? It's like not knowing what fork to use, uh, at a dinner party or, you know, the old trope about, you know, not going to play golf with, um, you know, the boys. And I mean, all of that stuff is quite cliched, but I really think that there is something very specific about, um, about culture in organizations that does stop people who are, you know, come from less traditional backgrounds yeah. from ascending through those organizations. So it is, it is a culture piece as much as it is about diversity um you know it's it's how do you include people who are not like you in your organization and when you're when you're talking to young people um and they're facing these blockers and they tell you about it how how would you suggest or advise them and you know what can they do what workaround can they find to to move the needle of this for themselves for, for themselves to progress and move uh, their talent through their organizations that they're, they're clearly passionate about that's why they're there yeah yeah absolutely I mean you know it's difficult because I think you've got to tread that balance between trying to kind of meaningfully include yourself in an organization mm -hmm. trying to understand you know how are things done here and um, how can I, 
you know, make myself kind of invaluable to this organization, not just through my hard work, but also through the way that I interact with my colleagues. Um, and definitely that is looking and learning. And so I will always advise people to, you know, really observe what is going on and what does that culture look like and learn from that. Um, learn from people that you admire who are carrying themselves in ways that you think is impressive. But mm. if you look around and you think that that culture is not something that you're interested in um, and you think that it's not something that seeks to include people who are different, maybe not just yourself, but maybe other people as well, um, then get out. <laughs> Basically, because, yeah. you know, I think culture is culture is what happens when no one's looking. And that's mm. what you have to pay more attention to. You know, it's not the big announcements about, you know, kind of meeting diversity quotas, um, you know, or, or new campaigns. It's the small interactions and the ways that people treat each other day to day that's what makes the difference. That's what affects your life. And that's what will either further or halt progress. Um, and so, yeah, I tell my students, you know, stay vigilant um, and decide for yourself if this is somewhere that you meaningfully want to be included. Yeah, that's interesting because enough of those <clears throat> things which go fall between the cracks or go unnoticed also amount to what we tend to call these days microaggressions, right? Mm. And uh, what you're saying is if enough of those build up and you've spoken up about it and you don't see this change, you, you suggest just move on. The world is big enough? I think, you know, we're seeing lots of changes um, in the world of work, especially with Gen Z coming into the workforce. And they have different ideas about... Um, how they should be treated at work. They have different ideas mm -hmm. about what is important. And, you know, frankly, I think their focus on social change and social justice means that they will have quite a lot of power to meaningfully shift the needle. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if you're not doing enough to prioritize the things that are important to them, they will go somewhere else. Um, and I think they look at you know, people maybe in my generation as a millennial or maybe above, and they think, well, you know, you worked really hard and the economy is not in a great state. And, you know, what have you got to show for us? Yeah. That's not the kind of life that I want for myself in my world of work. And I think it's not, I think that is exciting. I think it's exciting that there is a new generation of the workforce coming through that have very different ideas about um, you know, how we can build into the future. And that should be something that employees lean into, not shy away from. So that's that's a bit of a warning, isn't it, for the C-suite and, and the hardened chief executives out there of, you know, multi-billion uh, dollar corporations. I'd love to know how a 28-year-old navigates through this sort of topic with them. And how do you, how do you challenge, you know, someone, you're in the room and you're, you know, surrounded by bankers and asset managers or, you know, the most senior. And you, you've got to talk to them about this. How do you, how do you, how do you approach it? I think always lead with authenticity. Um, you know, that's really been important for me to be myself. Um, not only in the way that I comport myself, um, 
but also in the things that I say and the things that I, um, you know, really champion. I think that I'm very aware of my position as being young and being female in these rooms, but I'm also aware of my position of being, you know, a light-skinned black woman, of being somebody who has had and has been really fortunate to have a great education. So I have my own privilege that I carry with me. Um, and I think that that means that I can be an advocate in these spaces um, that maybe, you know, these tables who aren't meaningfully created for everybody, if I get to sit at them, then it's my job to speak up. Um, mm. And therefore there's no fear really, because, you know, I know that I'm there on behalf of a lot of people who maybe can't be. And yeah. I think the other thing that's important is that, you know, from the perspective of my board and, and them hiring me, you know, I have a less than traditional background. And I think that I have a huge amount of respect for them kind of putting their faith in me. It really means that they're, you know, putting their money or rather trust um, where their mouth is because that's what the program is trying to do. It's trying to champion, you know, kind of different talent pipelines. And I see myself as kind of representing that, you know, I didn't work in the city. I worked in financial services for a small yeah. time, but in comms. Um, and so when I speak to, you know, when I speak to these really incredibly important, incredibly successful people, um, you know, there's not a huge amount of weight behind me because I know that I'm bringing something different to the table. And I mm -hmm. think that that's what's more important. You know, I can say, you know, I'm not smart like you, but I'm smart like me. And I can give you a perspective that maybe you haven't had before. I love that. I love that you're talking about leveraging your privilege. And more recently, I've, I've heard a few conversations about even Caucasian city individuals leveraging their white privilege to stand up and use their platform and their spaces and positions of authority to advocate for change uh, within city firms. So that's exciting that that is another new um, strand that's coming through. I want to go to a slightly different um, perspective, just talking about hiring and recruitment. Um, something we've reported quite a bit on uh, at Financial News is the tendency of city firms to kind of hire from the Russell Group institutions. Are you seeing any shift in, in this approach? Are you seeing a change in um, attitude? Is it something that the foundation is, is looking to, to you know, talk about, advocate about? Yes. Um, in short, yes, absolutely. I think the conversation that I have most often with firms is, you know, are you going to meaningfully change your structures and processes when it comes to recruiting early talent? Um, are you going to change your requirements for application, whether that is, you know, a psychometric test that somebody has to take or whether that is a specific university that they had to go to or whether that is a specific grade that they had to achieve? Um, because I think what is very clear is that, you know, excellence is not monolithic. There are many different ways to be excellent. Um, and there are many different ways to be talented. And when we talk about diversity, it's not just about race, it is also about difference of perspective. Mm. Um, and so we can't talk about diversity without meaningfully talking about class um, or without talking about disability um, or without talking about gender, right? And so in that respect, if you are 
hiring excellent black graduates who have the same profile and makeup as their white counterparts, you are not getting a diverse enough opinion or diverse enough voices in the room. Um, And we know from a business perspective, you know, the bottom line is those firms who are winning the diversity race um, are also going to be winning the, you know, the profit race as well. And so there are some firms who are really, really two feet all the way in when it comes to this mantra and this new way of thinking. Um, And I can see it because they rip up the rule book and they just say, okay, we're going to take this slate of candidates and we're going to figure it out. And then there are still firms who are lagging behind and who are, you know, unable to, for whatever reasons, compliance or processes or protocol, um, you know, they still will not let go of the kind of traditional recruitment path that they've set out. And, you know, I really understand that, especially in big organizations, progress progress is, is difficult from a bureaucratic perspective, but, you know, they, they will be left behind eventually. Yeah, as you say, talent talent has a choice too, right? Exactly, exactly. And I think more and more so um, over the next, you know, five to 10 years. Yeah. Um, So I just want to know what would you what advice would you have for young talent, young professionals who who often just won't even attempt to go to some of these universities for obvious reasons because of the the fees for accommodation and on top of um, student uh, student loans to study and so on. What advice would you have for them if they're really passionate about certain sectors? But we know there's this tendency to to not look to their inner city, you know, further education colleges that they've gone to, how would you suggest they work around this or or what can they, yeah, I don't know, be creative about? I think programs like, as I will say, programs like the 10,000 Black Interns program, there are lots of them um, in the city and we're trying to be less London centric as well. So we are offering internships all over the country. I think this is a really meaningful way to be part of a talent pipeline that will allow you to have an interview at somewhere like Lloyds Bank. And that might be an absolutely terrifying prospect. You know, a lot of my students um, feel a lot of imposter syndrome, as I think we all do. Yeah. You know, there are still moments where that feels relevant to me today. But, you know, I think there's something about the camaraderie of being in a large group, a mixed group of people, um, and experiencing that kind of first step into the world of work together. And that network is the thing that will actually take you into the job that you want. Um, The thing that I say to my students all the time is, as you get to where you're going, lift as you climb, and make sure that you bring people less fortunate um, or, you know, who have fewer opportunities or, you know, who feel a lot more imposter syndrome than you do, whatever it is, bring people with you. Um, And I think that, yeah, that's the message. Go for it. So don't pull up the ladder behind you. Never. So I just want to know, I know, Rebecca, you spend a lot of time talking to um, to your students, as you call them, which is lovely, really endearing. <laughs> oh, what a what do they tell you that are the right now? You know, in this climate with the with all of the, you know, the, the sort of recessionary climate we're facing, the cost of living crisis that's upon us. 
Um, you know, and we're seeing a, a, a difficult post-Brexit, um, you know, sort of environment as well. Absolutely. But what do they tell you are the biggest challenges and, and biggest barriers they, they're facing right now? I mean, I think it's very, it's very kind of human. It's very simple. Um, you know, they, they are scared for the future and um, they don't know, you know, who they're going to be um, and they don't know how they're going to get there. And, you know, I think that's very normal. That's exactly how you're supposed to feel when you're 18, 19 years old. But definitely, as you were saying, you know, the economic climate around us is... It's, it's heightening all of that stuff. And I think there's a lot of anxiety around, you know, not necessarily being sure whether they are going to get a job. Um, and that is, yeah, I think that's the greatest challenge that they're facing at the moment, definitely, that there is kind of more so than ever this fear around, you know, I don't know if I'm going to get employed. Yeah. I just want to remind our audience, you do have a chance to send some questions to Rebecca, if you like. Um, we do have a few minutes left. And a lot are, they to come, are they going to come through in the chat? Yeah, I believe so. There's something, hell, analog in the US. What does this mean? I'm not quite sure. It's a strange one. Okay. Hold on a second. Nope, I'm not saying it. No, I, I, I do have one more um, for you, though. You know, okay, you, we're talking um, about young people who are, yeah, totally talented, um, very passionate about their industries, desperate to make an impression in their organisation, feeling, you know, um, feeling like they're being worn down by traditional barriers. What's your advice for their 22nd, 22nd elevator pitch? when they meet the chief exec in the, um, in the elevator, yeah. So for me, it's really always been about people um, and it's always about connections. I think one of the things that always sticks out to me is that when you're meeting somebody who is that senior, they don't want to talk about, you know, the company necessarily or the job that they're doing. They are interested in you and something that will make them remember you. And in return, you need to be interested in them and something that they are interested in beyond work. That's how real relationships are formed, right? Like we respect each other because of the work that we put in in the office, um, you know, but we know each other because of the ways that we are in our lives. And mm. I think that, you know, one of the things that I always do, especially when I'm going to meet somebody really big and important, is I find out something about them that I think they won't have spoken about or I think some, somebody won't have asked them about. And I definitely say that our interns should do the same, you know, really figure out who these people are and have a conversation with them about something that feels meaningful to both of you. Um, and that shared ground and that shared kind of commonality, that's where a real relationship will grow. No, that's uh, that's amazing, and I, I just have to say I did watch uh, a tiny bit of that documentary, and your dad did talk about that, didn't he? He said relationships are the most important thing. Um, it doesn't really, it may not matter how smart you are or how many degrees you have, but it is about being relational. Absolutely, life is about relationships and friends. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, so as far as 2023 is concerned, what are your worries? What are the things that concern you about what's coming up on the horizon? You know, especially, of course, with, with regards to, you know, trying to propel um, people of colour and talent of colour and so on through the door. Yeah, I think, you know, as we move further and further away from the kind of most recent reaction of the BLM movement, you know, there is a little bit of fatigue growing. Um, and that is probably one of the things that I worry about is that as this stuff becomes less and less a part of the kind of mainstream narrative um, mm. and this stuff being conversations about race and underrepresentation, um, and as diversity just kind of becomes, you know, a buzzword and part of people's kind of internal programmatic agenda, is there going to be enough kind of left on the table for people to continue kind of reaching beyond their current positions? Um, to meaningfully offer industry insight to underrepresented talent. Um, and I think especially as that comes to interact with hiring freezes um, and a continued recession, I guess for me, the main call to action to firms is, you know, we haven't done enough. We haven't gone far enough. There's still a mountain to climb. And, you know, we can't stop looking at this and we can't stop prioritizing it. It is really, really the most important thing that we have to think about when we think about, you know, the workforce. And so I guess that would be my kind of 2023 um, focus is let's keep this on the agenda. It's, yeah. it's incredibly important and we've got a long way to go. Yeah, that's really interesting. You're the second chief executive who's um, quite passionate and doing a lot around, you know, advocating for diversity. Um, and that's mentioned the sort of anti-workism um, and, the, you know, growing fatigue. It's very interesting. Um, we do have one query uh, that's come through. Is there a 10,000 black, black interns foundation in the U.S.? Or <laughs> um, it's funny. We have these conversations a lot. And my, my board are very energetic and very dynamic, very interesting people. Um, I think we're definitely going to be launching some more programs over the coming years. Um, and who knows, maybe those programs will take us across the Atlantic. Um, but at the moment, there is no 10 KBI US edition, unfortunately. But please do follow along. Um, you can visit our website and have a look at our journey. Yeah. And I show you, I'm sure you've got lots of uh, programs on there that you do share out more virtually as well for people. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of training opportunities. Um, there are lots of ways that you can get involved in our kind of annual cycle without being, you know, physically part of the program. So, yeah, please do come and join our growing community anyway. OK, well, um, I think that's about all we have time for today. So, Rebecca, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you to our audience who tuned in. Uh, we hope you listen to the next episode tomorrow. IBD's Alyssa Corum and Chris Jessel will discuss top trading lessons from 2022 to help you become a better investor in the new year and beyond. Thank you for listening. Stay safe. Rebecca, thank you so much. Have a great Christmas and a lovely new year too. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.